Welcome to The Gathering Pod, the audio version of my weekly gathering room broadcast. I'm Martha Beck. So I am here now and I am talking to you about the gift of uncertainty. I'm borrowing on my friend Gavin De Becker's phrase, the gift of fear, paradoxically named titles, yeah? So the gift of fear is about how we have an instinctive knowledge to act in our own best interests when negative things are happening and how every other form of fear is unnecessary. And if you read Gavin's book, Gavin De Becker, The Gift of Fear, you will see why I am gaga over him. He's awesome. On a a similar note, (laughs) it it may not be easy to be um, thankful for the gift of fear, but it may be even harder to be thankful for the gift of uncertainty. I've got a lot of loved ones right now who are kind of in limbo spaces, waiting on career news, waiting on medical news, waiting, you know, just trying and waiting and always in limbo. And it's awful. It's a really hard space to be in. It's one of the hardest things that happens to us as humans, right? Maybe not. Here's the deal. I've been reading, because I'm writing this book on anxiety, I've been reading tremendous amounts of um, psychology, but also neuroscience for lay people. Sometimes the official journals, some of those are amazing. And also I've been reading about the development of culture and how it reflects the psychology of us as individuals and how there's a sort of feedback loop. We put things out into the culture, the culture feeds it back to us and it increases the way we're already thinking. Now, one of the things I read this week that was so fascinating, and I had to tell you about it, is that the left hemisphere, you've heard me say this, you've, you've seen me with my friend Jill Bolte-Taylor, who literally wrote the book on the right and left hemisphere in My Stroke of Insight, and more recently, her wonderful book, Whole Brain Living. And we've talked about how there are these differences between the left and right hemispheres of the brain. Those are not absolute. All of the brain is working almost all the time. Okay, that said, there are still differences. And one of the differences is that on the left side, this little very ancient structure called the amygdala is always pumping out fear signals. Ah, 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 sometimes, ah. Right next to it is something called the hippocampus, which is in charge of all the hormones in your body. And the moment the amygdala goes, oh no, the hippocampus goes, Pull all the fire alarms, close all the doors, like put up all the barriers. Something terrible is happening. And literally within milliseconds, your body has secreted adrenaline and cortisol and shot it into pretty much every cell of your body. And you are in full flight or fight. And then the frontal lobe on the left comes in and says, oh, there's a very good reason we have to be afraid. Be afraid, be very afraid. And if there's nothing to be afraid of, it makes something up to be afraid of because what it wants to be is right. I have more to say about this in a minute. On the right hemisphere of the brain, also an amygdala, also a hippocampus, also a frontal lobe. But on the right side, the amygdala, instead of sending out ah, fear signals, sends out ooh, curiosity signals, which is really, really interesting, right? Like the same part of the brain that is scaring us to death on one side by and t- telling us, go away from everything. On the other side, there's a part that says, ooh, I want to connect with everything. And the hippocampus next to the right side amygdala, so the right side hipp- hippocampus, is not into like locking everything down and being in control. It's 
amazed. It's, it's sort of in the present moment, noticing everything, going, oh, you're right, you should be curious because look how amazing the world is. Now on the right side, the frontal lobe, still very developed, but it's not verbal. When it is verbal, it uses poetry. And in fact, poetry, jokes, and songs. And in fact, one of the fascinating things I read this week is that music seems to have developed first in ancient hominids and then led to the development of speech in the left hemisphere. But first, before people talked, they hummed and whistled and sang to each other. And this is why music is thought to be such an incredible emotional conduit. So lots of emotions and complex uh, feelings are handled on the right side of the brain and music connects that with us directly. There are no peoples known to science who don't sing together. But there are people who don't talk, who still only whistle or hum, use musical phrasings for their language. When I first read that, I didn't have the internet. Now I have Google. I was like, oh my gosh, I'm going to go look at those South American tribes that still communicate by whistling. It's fascinating. Go look at it. They have a whole whistle language with words, but they're whistles. <laughs> it's really cool. Anyway, language was derived from that. And poetry sort of comes first. And then the more scientific language of let's measure things and get them lined up in a row. I chop things into bits and get them lined up. So both sides are working all the time in healthy people. But our culture greatly overemphasizes the type of seeing that happens in the left hemisphere. And this is because, and I did not know this till this week either, the right side is aware of the left side. Oh, part of me is getting freaked out and building fear stories, but I'm going to sing a song about it. I don't have any real thoughts. I'm just, I'm going to be like amazed in the moment and communicating emotion. But the left hemisphere because it chops things into bits, doesn't know the right hemisphere perspective exists. This is so fascinating. From, from studies of patients who've had strokes, if somebody has a left hemisphere stroke like Jill Bolte-Taylor did, so the left side goes offline, the right side, she's told me she, was, she remembered being able to understand language and use language. She remembered like the feelings she had had. She didn't remember any of the facts. They came back to her later as she rebuilt her brain. But on the right side, she was aware of herself as this universal presence. And she had lots of emotion, but it was all in a weird way, blissful and euphoric. Like she, even when she feels sorrow now, there's, she, it's like there's, a, there's a way of um, kind of enjoying, she expresses uh, the joy of being able to feel that the way we feel joy when we go to a really, really good movie that has sad themes and it makes us cry, but there's something deeply moving and significant about it. So it feels right in a very particular way to the right hemisphere. Now, people who have had a left hemisphere stroke like that, they know that the thing exists. But if the, if the stroke is on the right hemisphere, so now you've taken out the poetry, music, understanding of everything. The left hemisphere will say, oh, nothing's wrong with me. I have it all under control. No problem. And people will say to them, but you cannot move the right side of your body. And they'll go, yes, I can. And the doctors say, well, try it. And they can't. And they go, it's totally moving. And the doctors say, no, it isn't. And some of them will actually say, well, of course it's not. That's not even my arm. I have no idea what that thing's doing here. Who put that here? Like it, 
it's horrible. So why am I grinning about it? Because it's horrible in a weirdly comedic way. Also, the right side of the brain finds things funny. So maybe I'm using the right side of my brain. But the interesting thing is that the left hemisphere, because it absolutely wants control, like it, it's, its impetus is fear, but its aim is control. And we live in a society whose impetus is fear and whose aim is control. And if you look at the political nonsense that is going on all over the world, most of the loudest voices are, are voices that are driven by fear and obsessed with control. And they keep thinking it's going to change if they argue enough. Because insanity is about doing the same thing over and over and expecting a different result, right? So this is why uh, in 1898, the U.S. Post, uh, no, sorry, the U.S. Patent Officer told the president that the patent office should be closed because everything that could be invented had been invented and anything that could be discovered had been discovered. We've got this. <laughs> we know everything. It's absurd. We, these little monkey bodies of ours on the third rock from the sun in a, in a universe so vast that it takes 38 million years for a beam of light to travel to the nearest galaxy to us. Oh yeah, we know everything. Nothing, that you, can, nothing you can tell us. So I'm looking at all this stuff and I'm also empathizing with my friends whose lives are so uncertain now. And I'm thinking what we need to do is like stage a, re a revolt. Uh, Rowan and I this week recorded a podcast um, where we quoted probably too much philosophy, but we loved it. Um, Albert Camus says, um, live, live in, such, in a way that is so free that your very existence is an act of rebellion. So one of the ways that we can live in such a way to be that free is to acknowledge our own uncertainty. And this is very, very hard for, now we'll switch to Buddhist language, for the ego to say that it is, doesn't know is very, very hard. This is why everybody who comes through my coach training, the first, one of the first things they learn is to ask clients to tell them any place they're making mistakes, to make ourselves completely open to being corrected, to not knowing enough, to being wrong. And what they always say is, well, people won't respect me if they think I don't know everything, if they don't think I'm in control, because that's what our whole cultural ethos is about. Everyone has to know everything and be in control or no one will respect them. But there's a part of us, the right hemisphere, that knows this is nonsense. We don't know what's going to happen in an hour, like an asteroid could hit. All right, we probably know an asteroid's not going to hit, but something could happen to each of our lives this very afternoon. As Pema Chodron says, what happens to you for the rest of today is as unknown to you as what will happen at the moment of your death. And the one thing we are pretty darn sure about is that we will die, but we don't have a clue about what happens next, except a lot of the left hemisphere scientific stuff is like, yes, we do. We know that all is nothingness and there is nothing more to be known except what we must know in these bodies. And um, that's funny. <laughs> um, here's the deal then. Right now, See if you can acknowledge that you don't know what's going to happen, say, in an hour. And you can set a timer and see how your life's going to be different in an hour. And for this hour, 
you get to dwell in complete uncertainty. But instead of criticizing that and trying to control things so that you can be okay in this uncertainty, move into it for one hour willingly. And here's what will happen to you when you really get willing and you, and you sit for an hour. This is what I used to do. I'd sit in meditation for an hour going, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. And I'd be terrified the whole hour. And this went on for months. And I just kept sitting there until finally one day I went, I don't know. And I was like, yeah, I never know. And yet here I am. And actually, it's kind of a nice day. <laughs> and then, then what happens, so if you can sit calmly and say, I don't know what's going to happen for this hour, in an hour, but for this hour, I'm going to let go of trying to control it. And then see if you can scratch up any curiosity about anything. Because to access your curiosity is to move away from your fear and into the brain that is the creative side. The left side is about chopping up and destruction. The right side is about bringing together and creating. And it starts with curiosity. And you know, two people told me yesterday, both of them had pretty significant mental health diagnoses. And the kind that in some people don't ever get like normalized at all like severe problems. And both of them said that at some point their therapist or doctor said, your prognosis is good because you're curious about your own mental health. You're asking me questions in a way that is not just terrified, but actually a fact-finding expedition. Like, oh, what is this? What is going on in my psychology? What is ever going on in anyone's psychology? Like that's why we end up writing poetry, right? Because we're trying to express to each other the, the mystery and strangeness of living in these bodies. So the curiosity is the doorway to the mystery. And once you've passed through that doorway, when I started doing that in meditation, I started experiencing bliss, connection, mystical experiences, visions, whatever, right? A lot goes well on the right side of the brain. So if you can just right now think of something you're curious about and find that feeling and let everything else go and just like, I'm really curious about those whistle languages in the Amazon. I'm going to go research that. Um, find any way you can to move into a state of curiosity and then pass that into the exploration of the mystery of being human. This is the path to bliss, you guys. It's the path out of anxiety and into peace. So um, I'm going to go to my, my, my um, fabulous questions here. Hello, the lovely peoples. This is Marty, Martha, inviting you to a free masterclass that I have made called Five Paths to Your Purpose. Probably the most common question I get from people is, how do I find my purpose? Why don't I feel that I'm on purpose? Well, it turns out there are certain things you have to do to find your purpose, and I broke them down into five, and I made a little masterclass about it. So if you'd like to see it, just go to marthabeck.com slash purpose and you will be able to watch it without any charge at all. Dr. Donna steps in right away. 
She says, can you share where you read all this amazing explanations of right and left brain functions? Well, I have been reading many things, but I've been bouncing off the bibliography and the text of a wonderful book called The Master and His Emissary, The Master and Its Emissary. I'm not sure exactly if it's his or its. I think it's its. The master is the right hemisphere and the emissary is the left hemisphere. And uh, Anne says, is Dr. Bolte Taylor coming back to the gathering room soon? I think if I admire her, she would. It's so fun to talk to her about these things. And um, the thing about her is like all the brain science stuff is very like science argumentative, science argumentative. But Jill's experience, uh, along with being a Harvard neuroscientist, she went there. She went there in a way that science cannot deny and so she knows the terrain of the right side of her brain, like nobody else writing from a scientific perspective. Um, so yeah, I really, that's one of the reasons I find her so compelling. And I asked her the other day, I said, have people been really rough on you about this whole hemisphere thing? And she's like, not a peep. And I was like, that's because they're actually afraid to go after you because you're not just a doctor, you're a patient. And they don't, they can't argue with your experience. So um, Budafield says, can you fake it until you make it? Pretend you're curious even while terrified. Actually, I think you maybe can, but I wouldn't try it. If you're terrified, the first thing you want to do is calm down the left side amygdala. So you're going to talk to it the way you'd talk to a very small child. You're going to be okay, honey. You're going to be okay. That's another thing I've been talking to a lot of people that I know were really anxious who came back from it and now live very centered, peaceful lives. And one of the things they talked about is this, I've called it kind internal self-talk before on this broadcast, kissed. And they say, you're okay, or we're okay. It's going to be okay. And in, in every case, they either use we or you, which means there's more than one voice right? There's either the voice of the collective, we're going to be okay, or there's a voice telling the frightened side that it's okay. You're going to be okay. What that does when you keep saying you're going to be okay is you, you, the one speaking is the one in the right hemisphere. So the more that left hemisphere calms down, the stronger that right side voice gets. And for some people, it started out with just a, a, a sort of scream in the dark, I'm going to be okay, okay, you're going to be okay. But it grows very strong if you keep practicing talking kindly and gently to this frightened internal animal. And so once you've done that and brought it down a piece, like look around the room, say for one hour after the gathering room or after the gathering room began, um, I am going to be curious about something. You can be curious about the fact that you may not be able to calm down. Like anything is fair game. You're just looking for curiosity. Jennifer says, I would love suggestions for understanding how to be in the world when you realize the ego is not who you actually are. This is exactly what I've been thinking too, because for me, it's always inside the person. Here's what happens. Around the person, you got culture. I'm a sociologist, not a psychologist. So what you do for the world is move into the right side of your brain and show up as that. So... Um, one of my favorite recent books uh, is called Never Split the Difference. It's by uh, an FBI. He was the head hostage negotiator for the FBI. His name is Chris Voss, V-O-S-S. -S. 
And he writes this book about how to how he dealt with psychopathic people who had taken hostages and were going to kill them. <laughs> Not the ideal situation, kind of the maximum fear. And what he says is you go into what he calls the late night DJ voice. And he says, he actually says, and you can tell he's very male oriented because he's like, you're not going to believe this, but I'm going to ask you to go imitate someone. And that someone is Oprah. Low, slow, thoughtful, curious. So what really is going on with you? Watch Oprah interview someone. She's like, so what's that about? And, and she's genuinely curious. She could be talking to a racist, white supremacist, terrifying, creepy person. And she's like, and, and I mean this literally, she's done it. So explain that to me so that I can really get it. Like, it's, that's how you go into the world. You go from a place of calm. You, and even if your heart is beating a thousand beats a minute, Bring your low DJ, late night DJ voice. How are you? Oh, looks like you're really scared. I've mentioned Maria Bamford, the comedian. She does this hilarious bit where it's like the late night call in. It's like, hi, Devin. Uh, you're on the line. Sounds like you're having some problems with your girlfriend. I hear you, Devin. She goes back and forth between the person and the, the late night DJ voice. If you want something that will give you, you know, watch Oprah, watch Maria Bamford do that. As you go through the world, if you hold that, if you hold your curiosity, that's another thing. Uh, a lot of like Maria Shriver is a dear friend of mine and she was a journalist and she's always curious about everyone. And she's always like, tell me more about yourself. And it's so calming. And she's calm, like, mm settled in and she's genuinely curious and so she just brings that and brings that and brings that and so people respond and respond and respond because genuine curiosity is such an intensely powerful thing and curiosity is just another name for uncertainty if we had no uncertainty we wouldn't ever get to curiosity we just sit in the left hemisphere going i know everything nothing else exists really do we really want to keep living in that world Okay, yeah, so you, when you are walking through the world, you do it calmly. You do it not as your ego, but as the Buddha, and you expect everybody else to be ego if they want to be. That's none of your business. You just stay in your late night DJ voice and be the Buddha, <laughs> the awake part of yourself. Um, Hillary says, how can you handle the curiosity haters? I'm regularly called kooky or a dreamer. Well, you can be curious about the, the people who are calling you a kooky dreamer. Why would you say that? I'm very, like, as long as you're not defensive, if you don't let them put you on the defensive, if you stay in your curiosity, you will always win them over because everyone wants to be known. So somebody says, you're a dreamer and you'll never succeed and that's ridiculous and you know that's not likely. And you say to them, tell me more. Like, I'm fascinated by the way you think. I really want to understand how you know this. I'm really open. Like, please say more. And they will. They really, really will. And one thing I've realized about people who are in high anxiety, I've had people who were like people in crowds. Once or twice I've had like weird hecklers stand up and start booing and screaming things at me and stuff. And one thing I've realized is if somebody's that panicked and weird, if you just give them space and say, uh-huh, mm-hmm, 
they burn themselves out pretty quickly. <laughs> it's kind of like letting a frightened animal run around and around and around. It burns out its adrenaline. And if you don't make any moves to fight, it's like if you're just like, mm-hmm. If you're curious instead of, of fearful, the animal runs out of adrenaline and stops running. We are the only creatures in nature that recycle our adrenaline after the threat is gone and actually upcycle our fear. Because we make up stories about how oh, it's gonna happen again and all kinds of stories that animals can't make up. So yeah, talk to the animal in other people as well as in yourself in a curious way. And you will watch their adrenaline go down and they will start to connect with you. Katerina says, how do I break association in my mind between uncertainty and something very bad happening? Becoming aware of uncertainty immediately took me to a bad thing happening, just not in any way I could ex expect. That's your left side amygdala reacting to what it's been taught. Because we have been taught that we should know and knowing and controlling things keeps us safe. The reality, I'm going to say it many times, you will hear it from me anytime you talk to me. The reality is we don't know jack crap. We know almost nothing. And that's okay. And we're not in control of jack crap. And that's okay. We still will go through life. Many good things will happen to us. Many bad things will happen to us. We will live through all but one. Now, when you get scared of that fact, know that your poor little left side amygdala is running around like a terrified hamster and probably needs a cuddle. So it's yelling, oh my God. So your amygdala is like, uncertainty? How do, it's, is it really uncertain? And the hippocampus goes, oh my God, I gotta control it. And your left frontal lobe goes, here's a list of the worst things that could happen. You can go from the outside in. Start making a list of all the good things that have happened to you in your life of all the planes that never crashed, of all the times you didn't, you walked on the street and didn't get splashed by a car or run into or mugged. Write down every time you interacted with a stranger and they were kind, every time someone did something ethical. Start focusing on what's going right and you'll see that it is the huge majority of what's happened to you. Otherwise, you'd be dead. And it's just, it's training your attention. Attention, attention, attention. In the brain, they say what fires together, wires together. You have fired your fear circuits tons of times. And so they're really strong and they take over as soon as you start accepting uncertainty. And you have to gently say, sweetheart, that's like a, a one-year-old baby, like grabbing for, the, for a shotgun over and over. You just have to say, no, honey, you don't get that. No, sweetheart. No, no, no. Look, here's something else to be curious about. It's a set of blocks. Isn't that as much fun as a shotgun? You just have to keep the toddler away from the shotgun by giving it other toys to play with, things to be curious about. So City Lotus says, if we're deeply in left brain figuring out logistics, can we shift to right brain and then back to left brain? Some of us don't shift because we're afraid of letting go. Here's the thing, you have to be very aware of it. And the, if you're aware of it, you're in the right side of your brain. On the left side, you're not aware that you've gone to only the left side. So all your curiosity is gone, you're all about control, you're all in fear, and you may not be able to recognize that for a while. But here's the thing about fear and control. They make us miserable. So very soon, you know, in a matter of days, if not hours, you will say, I don't like my life anymore. Why 
Why does every, when will the hurting stop? And with that, you know, ah, oh, that's the left side of my brain in, in its panic mode. And I'm going to be very kind to it. Here, honey, like literally get yourself a cup of tea, a soft blanket, sit down, you know, watch an English baking show, whatever. That's some hardcore peace, guys. So it will shift you back. And, and then the next time you, you shift into left brain and get panicky again, it'll come to your attention more quickly. And I notice that when I'm uncertain, I've been going through some uncertain things in the last couple of days, and it's like immediately my brain starts to think, ooh, this could be good. <laughs> and it's just because I've fired that circuit so many times, and you can do it too. But our culture won't tell you to do it. Okay, and Kelly says, how can we use both sides together? My left side is way more developed than my right, so I don't trust it as much. Well, the fact is that except in people who have some kind of brain damage or mental illness, the two sides of your brain are pretty much always working together. Like I'm using vast generalizations when I say left side, right side, because it's going back and forth all the time. But if you notice that there's more of a preference to be afraid than to be curious, you can know that it's out of balance. So that's what the master and his emissary is about. The right brain is the master and sends out the left brain on a fact-finding expedition. And it's supposed to come back to the right side of the brain with its facts. So the right side of the brain can continue it creating and exploring. But when the left side is sent away, it decides that there is no master and it's in charge and it's got it, got everything. So if your emissary is getting a little highfalutin and thinking that it knows everything, you want to gently bring it back by doing things that hit the right hemisphere harder. So listen to music, like feel music. Listen to music that you can feel. Read poetry. Read Rumi, who talks about just being bewildered and confused and like letting go of everything. Um, go to... Yeah, I would say don't even go straight to meditation. It doesn't take you there as fast. Go to wonder. Go to awe. Go on a little safari online of the internet, finding out the things you've never seen before. Um, put in things like 50 interesting facts you never knew. You can find out a lot that way. So just play up your curiosity and know that any if any uncertainty is in your life, you might as well wait with curiosity rather than with fear. Because we're never certain, but we almost never need to be afraid. And the quality of our lives comes from the way we position ourselves in uncertainty. And when we go to the place where we are uncertain but unafraid, that is where the gift of being human actually arrives. To be uncertain and unafraid is to be like a ship sailing on the sea of the mystery. And yes, a ship that never leaves the harbor is always safe, but that's not why ships are built. So I hope that helps y'all out there. I hope your uncertainties end wonderfully. I hope all the best things in the world happen to you. And we don't even know what's out there. It's so good, right? And I'm so glad that every week I tune in, not knowing if anyone will show up and every week. People show up. What an amazing universe. Thank you for joining me. I love you all. And I hope to see you very soon again here on The Gathering Room.
It's a bewildering moment to be alive. That's why Martha Beck, me, and Rowan Mangan, me, created Bewildered, the wildly successful podcast for people trying to figure it out. Most of us are trying to fit society's expectations about how we should live, which is stressful and confusing. On Bewildered, we look at topics like perfectionism, what it means to have enough, anxiety, and creativity to see where the culture may be pushing us all away from the lives that truly fulfill us. If you're bewildered, if you want to think and you love to laugh, come join us. For almost 30 years, I've been teaching people to do something that I call reading your internal compasses. I believe we are all born with direction-finding mechanisms that are inherent in us and will help us find our best destiny. Uh, A few years ago, though, I realized that a lot of people were getting very, very anxious. And this is true. Anxiety is going nuts all over the planet. So I spent five years researching and writing a book about how to read your compasses and lower the anxiety that's getting between you and your right life. And I'm very excited about the book. It's coming out in 2025. But I would love to teach you about it before the book comes out. So this summer, I'm doing a course called The Wayfinder's Compass, Moving Beyond Anxiety. And you can check it out by going to marthabeck.com slash compass. And we will have a fabulous time putting you on course for your North Star.